As you open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, we're going to continue in our series, Embracing God's Heart for the Nations. Right there in the book of Jonah, we will mostly be in Jonah chapter 2, but as you get there, I just want to tell you a story of something that happens in my life, sadly, way too often in my life. I will uh, either come to work or go to the things that God has called me to that day, and something might go wrong. Some circumstance comes in that's frustrating. It's hard. It it leads to a lot of uh, anxiety or not understanding. God, why are you doing this today of all days? What's going on? And then the situation seems to go from bad to worse. And I start trying to fix it myself, right? Men, you might understand this. We like to fix things and just have the quick solution, just fix this thing, fix this thing. But any fix that I can think of is not working. And I don't ask anyone else for help, but I do go home oftentimes and start talking to my wife. And then the venting comes up, right? The fuming rises up from my feet to the top of my head. I just don't understand why is this happening to me again? Has anyone ever felt that? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Has anyone ever felt something like that? The wisdom of my wife when she says, well, Aaron, have you prayed about it? And I say, gosh, no, I haven't prayed about it yet. We're going to open the scriptures and find that's exactly where Jonah is. We've already seen that God has commissioned him to go to Nineveh, a nation that he does not want to go to, his enemy, right? He has no affection, no compassion for these people that are God-haters in his mind. And so he runs and he flees. He gets on a boat going to Tarshish. God sends the storm, stops him in his tracks, gives him an opportunity to respond, repent, even talk to the sailors who don't know who God is, but he doesn't. He says, just throw me overboard. He's thrown overboard, and then we saw last week in chapter 117, God sends this great fish to swallow him up. It's such a shock to me. We're going to read right here in chapter 2 in a minute that Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, and then he prayed, right? He didn't have his wife there saying, Jonah, have you prayed about this yet? I mean, have you thought about responding to God? Three days and three nights. Let's open up the scriptures and take a look at that. In chapter 1, verse 17, we'll start there and we will read through 2.9 for now and then keep going a little later. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then... Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed and I will pay. Salvation belongs 
to the Lord. Before we go any further, I just again want to draw your attention to this fact, this idea that Jonah in his rebellion had been thrown overboard into the sea and swallowed by this fish and actually waited three days and three nights to cry out to God. Then he prayed after that amount of time. So there might be some of you in here, and the only thing you need to hear from me today, you might just hear it and you could shut off for the rest of the day, all right? The only thing you might need to hear is if you are in a situation, a circumstance, a trial, brought on by your own sin and rebellion or just brought on by this fact that we live in a curse, and you have waited days, weeks, months, years to cry out to God, just stop. Just stop. And today's the day that you look at the life of Jonah and you see here is this wonderful song of deliverance and he cried out to God. The only thing you might need to hear this morning is just, just stop waiting and cry out to God. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Come and show me your goodness and your faithfulness, God. Show me that you are still in control and I will put my hope in you even if the situation stays the same. You just turn to him today. And cry out to him and not make the same mistake as Jonah and sit in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. But then as we transition into our passage this morning, you're going to see two major scenes here in the book, right? Uh, The first one is Jonah's desperate situation. He's praying out to God. The second one is God's amazing deliverance of him. Then we will close with a struggle. I think Jonah still is struggling, embracing the heart of God for the nations. So let's look at this scene one. God hears Jonah's prayer, and there are some things that we can learn from this prayer, some elements of this prayer that I think we can learn from. Here's the first element. Jonah's being heard by the Lord. There is a gratitude that Jonah has that God hears his voice. Look at verses two and verse three. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Just a simple gratitude, this sweetness that all of us who are found in Christ have access to the Father through the Son. We approach his throne with confidence, knowing, God, incline your ear to me. That's what David said in the Psalms. Won't you hear my voice now, God? I am confident that I can speak to you. You can hear me. What a, what a good thing to start our prayers with just a gratitude. God, thank you for hearing me. This next element in his prayer, Jonah acknowledging he's on the edge of death. He's right there at the edge, pressing up against his desperate situation. Do you see what it said in verse 3? You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. There's this picture of him drowning and the waves are just coming and crashing into his face and into his head, and he can't get his air, just crashing, and the sea is covering him up. He is on the edge of death. I don't know exactly what the scene looked like in Jonah's life, but I remember a time very similar when I was in the sea on the edge of death. In my arrogance, I thought I could act like a pro surfer on our honeymoon. We were in Hawaii. I had surfed two times. One time in California, no surf lessons. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Another time in South Padre in the Gulf of Mexico, and I had a buddy in college show me a few things. I got a few waves, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert, right? We're in Maui, and a storm is rolling in. The waves are not the two and three feet that I was used to. They were eight to ten foot waves, and I thought, this is awesome. I'm going to go surf these things. So I could find a surf shop, 
I said, how much can I rent this board for, for just an hour? And he says, don't even pay me. I'm going out. I'm closing this shop down. Just take the board. We're going to hit the waves, man. Right? You can imagine this guy. He's a surfer. I go out there. I'm struggling. It's, the way. it's hard to paddle against huge waves like that. Okay? And I finally get the spot, and I'm watching these guys. They're catching them. They're so great. I think, I'm going to do this. I make the classic rookie mistake. I don't know if you've ever surfed, but just imagine this long board, and I'm at the front of it. The wave picks me up, and the first thing I do is torpedo straight into the water. I fall right off the board, right? And I'm in this wave, being bounced around like a rag doll. This leash connected to my ankle is just pulling me through the waves. I can't get my breath. The wave just keeps crashing over me and crashing over me and crashing over me. And I think, oh my gosh, I just got married to my beautiful wife and she's going to be a widow. Literally, my life is flashing in front of my eyes. I was at the edge of death. This is a desperate situation for Jonah as he says, these waves are crashing over me and the sea is coming over me. This word, this Hebrew word, Sheol, it's a literal meaning of the deepest death to the place where you can be furthest from God because that's where the deepest death is. There's no life there. And he says it right there. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried to you. There's a very interesting connection. Psalm 86 says something similar. As David prays, for great is your steadfast love towards me, you delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. He was at the edge of death. Then as you look at this song a little longer, it almost looks like a, a complete opposite of something we see in the Psalms. Psalm 120 all the way through Psalm 134. These are the, the Psalms of Ascent, right? Israel would pray these. They would memorize these as they were going to Jerusalem, as they were going to the temple to worship God and give their sacrifices. And they would ascend up into that holy hill and say these praises to God. Something very opposite is happening in Jonah's song, rather than a psalm of ascent, we see a, a greater and greater desperation. That he is sinking more and more and more into the depths of death. Did you see it when I read it? Start in verse 3. We already read that one. The floods surround me, the waves pass over me. But what about verse 5? The waters closed in over me to take my life, and deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And then verse 6, at the roots of the mountains. Right? If, if Israel goes to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple at Mount Zion, figuratively, here is the actual opposite. Jonah has descended down to the depths of the ocean floor at the mountains. This anti-psalm of ascent, Jonah is just telling us of his desperate situation, and it gets worse. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Almost as if he's saying here that the gates of hell, the gates of eternity were shutting in on him and he was still running from God. It's a bad situation. And then the turn, verse 6b, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Elements of his prayer. Here's another element he was seeking the presence of God. There's this reference in verse 4 and verse 7 that he's praying towards the temple. 
He's praying towards God's temple, and this was the tradition in Israel and the Jews. They would always pray towards the temple, right? Because God's presence was supposed to be in the temple. It takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 8, and Solomon is dedicating the temple. And by all means, he understands God does not live in a building built by human hands. Acts 24, Paul said the same thing. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. It's not as though we can contain all-knowing, all-powerful God into the temple. Solomon says that. I know that the, the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain you, O Lord, but won't you bless us when we turn towards your presence and pray to you? Won't you hear us from heaven, O God? You can read that in 1 Kings chapter 8. That's exactly what Jonah is doing here. He's turning towards the temple, seeking God's presence. But even in that, there's an irony. His whole life in this book has been running from God's commission. He should know if he's praying towards the temple what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, chapter 41. When Solomon prayed that there might be a day that the Gentiles, that the foreigners would turn and pray towards the temple and seek God's presence. Listen to what it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all that which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, all the peoples of the earth, including the Ninevites, including the sailors. Jonah should know this. That they might fear you as do the people of Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Jonah, in turning towards the temple and acknowledging, God, hear me, I am praying towards your temple, is seeking God's presence. There's something good about that element of his prayer. And then in verse 6, we see this hope in God and it's confidence that Jonah has in verse 6 when he says at the turn, yet you brought me up. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Just think about it for a moment. He is praying in the belly of a fish. He's been there for three days and three nights. No food, no water, no light. And yet in his prayer, he shows this confidence. God, I know you're going to spare my life. I'm hoping in you, I'm trusting in you, oh God, that you will bring my life up from the pit. Even as he's there in the belly of a fish, he's hoping in God. There is this strong confidence in God in his prayer. And then the cap of it all in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Praising God for salvation. And so we see in his prayer this huge contrast. Jonah is in this desperate situation, right? But God gives this dramatic rescue as he delivers Jonah from the fish. Jonah literally was at the depths of the ocean. No one's going to hear him down there. He could cry out for help. He could scream for rescue. No one's going to hear him. Jonah can't rescue himself at the depths of the ocean. Yet God comes in, appoints the fish, swallows him up, and now he's praying, salvation belongs to the Lord. There's some really great elements in this song of Jonah, in this psalm as some call it. 
this prayer of his. And I just, I wonder if I could challenge you this week to find some time and get alone with God, to get out your pen, get out your journal, and write something similar to this. See some similarities between your own life and Jonah's life and say, God, help me to remember where I was when I was on the edge of death, stuck in my sin, desperate for you, desperate for you to rescue me and deliver me. And you might be able to write about some of the things, being grateful that he hears you or seeking his presence or declaring your hope in God, praising him for your salvation. Wonderful homework assignment, if you will. Just get alone and praise God for what he's done. Remember how desperate you were before Christ changed you from the inside out. It reminds you to sing this song of your own. Lord, I need you. Lord, thank you. I am grateful. I hope in you. I think there's one thing we can learn from Jonah's prayer here. Here's another thing we learn from this narrative, though. Scene two, simply this. God saves Jonah to send him back to Nineveh, right? This rebellious prophet who had run from God's presence, who wanted to get as far as he could get away from God, got exactly what he wanted. Depths of the ocean and the belly of a fish. I don't think you can get much further, right? And then, in the midst of his desperation, cries out, when his life's on the line, God, help me, save me, I'll do anything. And what does God do? He saves Jonah to send him back to Nineveh. Stopped him in his tracks at the storm. He appoints the fish, and he says, Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh, right? Read with me in chapter 2, verse 10, and then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Same phrase as in chapter 1. Jonah, arise, go. The captain finds him in the belly of the ship. It says, what are you doing, you sleeper? Arise. Cry out to God. Maybe he'd rescue us. And here God, the second time, after saving him, says, Jonah, arise. Go to Nineveh. You see, God rescues Jonah only to recommission him and send him back to Nineveh, that he might fulfill the mission that God had given him. It's amazing as you look at this, just to see the sovereign hand of God saying, Jonah, I called you to the nations. I called you to Nineveh, and you're going to go there. I'm sending you there. I will save you to send you back. So I just wonder, in your own walk with the Lord, if you were to evaluate your your own spiritual journey. You see any similarities there? When it comes to rebelling against God or knowing that He's given you a mission, we so often ignore it. We're so often lazy. Even though we've rebelled, that we have run from God's presence, He works His grace and His mercy, and He's continuing to give us His steadfast love. Weren't we just as hopeless in the depths of our sin before Christ came to rescue us? Weren't we just as desperate for salvation? Weren't we just as needy for a new heart to be changed from the inside out? We absolutely were. 
Yes, sometimes we do just what Jonah does. We run. We're lazy. We say, no, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. I hate those people. The thing we can hear this morning from Jonah's life and from his testimony, God didn't just save Jonah to send Jonah back to Nineveh. God saved you and me that he might send you and me. See, so often you hear this phrase that we've been rescued, saved, we've responded to the gospel. Why don't we just immediately beam up into heaven? Why don't we just beam up into the kingdom? You know the answer. God wants to use you here in the earth. God doesn't just save us. He saves us to send us. He's given us a mission. We're so gladly reminded of that in this training, this discipleship multiplication training. We so often go back to the book of 2 Corinthians 5 to hear about our new identity in Christ. Let me just read that for you. Chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled back to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have been changed, become new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Why? Because he's given us a ministry to reconcile those who are still separated from God. He's given us a message of reconciliation, this hope of the gospel. Jesus will take your sin and give you his righteousness. Such a good reminder of those things today. Jesus doesn't just clean us up for the sake of us. But he cleanses us. His blood pours over our sin as a payment so that we might go back out into lostness. He gives us a new heart so that we might go back out into the world, back out into the mission field. The harvest is ready. He already said it. He's just asking that we go out and do the work. We scatter the gospel. God saved you to send you. And if you've responded to the gospel, then that means you've, re- you've been redeemed, you've been given a new heart, you've been given a new identity. He's not just converted you to Christ. You've been commissioned by Christ to fulfill his task. And so how are we doing? If we're just going to check up and be real, how are we doing with those things? How often do you consider that the very fact that God saved you or rescued you was not only for yourself, but was for others? David prays in the psalm, Psalm 67, God, bless us, O God, Not just so we have a blessing, but that we might be a blessing to the nations. You ever think that God saved you so that some person might hear the gospel from your lips and give their life to Christ so that some other person that you don't even know might hear the gospel and give their lives to Christ and be discipled by them and see this process of disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. 
I just wonder how often we think of that. The very reason God saved us was to send us. He desires for you to make a difference in His kingdom. So here's where the rubber meets the road. If it's true that you've been saved to be sent, if it's true that I've been saved to be sent, who is God sending you to? And I'm not just saying just missionaries or just pastors. I'm saying every single believer. If you've been saved to be sent, then who is God sending you to? And I just want you to get very specific. Just take a minute that you'd pray right now where the Holy Spirit's already bringing people to your minds and you'd write down their names in your Bible. You jot down your names and your, their names in your journal. And you start praying over them and say, God, I'm, I'm receiving this call from you. You didn't just save me for my own sake. You saved me that you might send me. Maybe uh, in our time of response, you would come up and you'd pray for these people by name. Or you'd talk to people in your small group and say, I need some help, I need some accountability that I would be influencing these people, speaking to these people, willing to sit down and read the Bible with them, disciple them. Because he's already given me a vision that salvation is more than just selfish. He saved me that I might be sent. That's the other scene that we see here. But then there's still a struggle with Jonah. Look at verse 16. Actually, look at verse 1. 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. Do you remember the response of the sailors? They said that they were afraid before because they knew that Jonah was running from the God who controlled the sea and the dry land. After Jonah gets thrown off the boat, they actually fear him, a reverent fear. Chapter 1, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Something happening here in Jonah's prayer in verse 8. He goes back and he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Who do you think he's talking about? These idol worshipers. He's talking about none other than these sailors, right? When, when it was frantic and the storm was there, they were just running all around the boat, crying out to every small G God that they could think of. Who's your God? Cry out to him. Maybe he'll rescue us. I'm going to cry out to this God. Crying out to all these vain idols. And Jonah, in his spiritual pride and self-righteousness in the belly of a well, see, it says, I'm so glad I'm not like those guys. They don't know you, God. They were crying out to everybody but you. I'm glad I know you and I have confidence you're going to rescue me. Totally unaware, totally ignorant of the fact that God was already doing a work in the sailor's life. That they were beginning to see Yahweh with a reverence and an awe and making vows to him and making sacrifices to him. Can you see the spiritual pride there? Can you see the self-righteousness there? That he's still continuing to struggle to embrace God's heart for the nations. It's one of the reasons why I think the text says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. That picture of being vomited out, that's humiliation. That's humbling, right? There are other references in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 48, where God humiliates his enemies. 
It says in verse 26, Make him drunk because he magnified himself against the Lord so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit. And he too shall be held in derision. This idea that God made the fish vomit him was an effort to humble him and say, Jonah, you still don't get it, man. You're still so self-righteous and prideful. And don't you know that in our own hearts, self-righteousness will always hinder our ability to be on mission. Anytime we look at somebody else and say, I'm so glad I'm not like those people over there, that will never encourage you to be fulfilling the mission of God. That comparison and that spiritual pride and that self-righteousness will always tempt you to be exactly like Jonah, totally unaware of what God is doing, might be doing, or can do, because we're more concerned about being self-righteous and comparing ourselves to others. We'll look also at this evidence of spiritual pride. Did you know that the one thing missing in his prayer, I don't want to tell you to write out a psalm like Jonah because it's the perfect example. There's something missing. Did you catch it? The thing that's missing here is repentance. Jonah had ran from God. Jonah rebelled against God. Jonah was cast into the sea. Yeah, sure he was. But then he blames God for it in verse 3. You cast me into the sea. He knows that he's not fulfilling the mission God has given him, yet he never repents in this prayer. He never says, God, forgive me for not embracing your heart. God, forgive me for not obeying your commission. God, forgive me for not realizing I have a chance with the sailors to tell them of your character. Lord, forgive me for hating Nineveh and running from that prophet ministry you called me to. God, I'm sorry. There's none of that here in this prayer. There is still evidence of a spiritual pride because there's no repentance. And again, if we are going to embrace God's heart for the nations, it's going to come when we humble ourselves before his presence and repent. God, forgive me. I know my own sin. I know my own struggle. Because if there's a lack of repentance in our own heart, how are we ever going to have compassion on somebody else that's still struggling with sin? Spiritual pride and self-righteousness will always hinder us from participating in God's mission. So There are a lot of things to learn here. We can look at the prayer. We can be encouraged. We can sing a song of deliverance to God. We can write those things down, and we should. Further, I can ask everyone here this question. Do you have a song of salvation? Have you come to a point where you aren't just trusting in God's grace and mercy for Jonah, but you understand what 2 Corinthians said, that Jesus came that he might take our sin and give us righteousness, but it still is required of us to turn away from sin and trust in him, to repent and believe, to respond to the good news of the gospel, and maybe there's someone in here that doesn't have that song of salvation. And I would invite you today to respond to the gospel. That you might be able to say what Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord, that you might have the same hope and the same confidence that he has. God, you will spare my life. You've brought me up out of the pit, and I'm hoping in Christ, even in spite of my circumstance. But if you don't know salvation, you don't have those confidences. You don't have that hope. So I would invite you 
as any faithful preacher of God's word should and would do, come to Christ today. Understand how to turn from sin and trust in Him today. Anyone here can open a Bible and help you with that. You can talk to a pastor, sure, but I'd love for you to just stop someone before walking out the door and say, hey, help me understand that. I want to be sure about my salvation in Christ. But my guess would be that the the biggest application for us this morning as a church is to look at Jonah's struggle and ask ourselves the question, are we struggling? Jonah had a clear mission from God. Go to Nineveh. Preach judgment, preach repentance, and he kept running. Even as he turned and said salvation belongs to the Lord, he kept comparing himself to the sailors. There was a self-righteousness and a spiritual pride that we will see in chapter 4 continued to plague Jonah from actually getting to fully participate in God's mission. Is the Spirit getting your attention with any spiritual pride or self-righteousness? Those people are beyond salvation. That family member's never going to come to Christ. They're so far gone. I'm doing great because Jesus has cleaned me, but they're done for. I'm not even going to waste my time talking to them. I wonder if God is dealing with you in this time. There might be any sense of repentance for you to say, God, forgive me of that. And help me to embrace your heart for the nation.